Today we're going to be in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 12, and we'll go from chapter 12 down to verse 14. So Hosea uh, chapter 11, verse 12, start there. And as you uh, turn there in your Bibles, have you ever had a life-altering encounter with someone else? Uh, Someone uh, came into your life and they changed it for the better. We could probably all speak of ways in which we've had life-altering encounters with people who didn't change our lives for the better. But, But have you ever had someone who had such a positive impact on your life? Maybe it's the person who first taught you about Jesus Christ, who, who took the time to explain to you who Jesus is. Uh, maybe it's uh, that they taught you something fundamental about dealing with other people, and that just changed your perspective for the better uh, for the rest of your life. Maybe they broadened your understanding of the Scripture. They've asked you questions about your presuppositions that you bring to the Scripture, and it really opened up the word to you in a new way. And, and you finally started to see things you never saw before in the scriptures. And perhaps they gave you the confidence you needed to step out and do something bold. There are times when people are placed in, in our path in life that change the trajectory of it. And we ought to thank God for those people. We ought to thank God for his work of grace through others in our lives. And what happens, though, when we have an encounter with God? What happens when we meet with our Creator? Well, today, as we come to our passage, what Hosea does for us, what God does for us, is he tracks the life of Jacob, a man who had encounters with God that changed him forever. And I want us to see today in our passage that an encounter with God ought to change us for the better. An encounter with God ought to change us for the better. Uh, So let us look at our passage today. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 12. And this is the word of the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. 
In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife. For a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. <coughs> Ephraim, <coughs> Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. And this is God's word. So just to track kind of where we are, chapter 11 at the outset, so verses 1 through 11, really put a hold on the oracles of, uh, of woe for the people of Israel, uh, the pronouncements of doom upon them, of, the, of this northern kingdom. And it is there to remind them that the love that God loves them with is there because of their forefathers, right? It's a reminder that God has steadfast love, not because of them in that moment, but because of those who have come before them. Indeed, this issue of love feeds directly into our passage today. We might sum it up this way, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We see that in the book of Malachi, verses uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Or we also know it in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 13. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Remember that after Jacob wrestles with God, God renames him Israel. And so we deal with this both issues of the name of Jacob here. Uh, Jacob, by the way, meaning something like supplanter. And Israel being something like strives with God. And we'll discuss that a little bit more as we go through our passage. But the people of Israel are the people of Israel because God made them so, because the, he confirmed his blessings unto Jacob. So let's get into our passage today. I want us to see first the wind, the wind. Uh, chapter 11, verse 12 through chapter 12, verse 1. So the first two verses of our passage today. And just as a, a note here, uh, eleven twelve is actually... Chapter 12, verse 1 in the Hebrew text. Uh, so our English text and the verse numbering diverts a little bit from the Hebrew. Uh, this verse is probably something of a transitional verse, which it makes it difficult to understand where is best place. Is it part of what has come before in chapter 11, or is it tied to what is in chapter 12? And the reality is both. It's a kind of a transitional verse here. It bridges the gap. And it begins with this, uh, this word that says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. We don't know exactly what these lies are. It could just be, generally speaking, apostasy, that, right? That they are false, are, are wrong, and they're speaking about God, and they're speaking about what God's word says. Uh, one commentator conjectures that it could be something like this, that a place that was dedicated to worship of the Lord is surrounded with false idols. And this is something that we know does happen in the history of the people of Israel, uh, speaking more broadly. Uh, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8, we have a discussion of this practice in the land of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem, and in the temple. So just one example of this, you could go to Ezekiel 8 and you see this whole vision that Ezekiel has. But I just want us to look at 1 in verses 9 through 11. 
uh, Ezekiel 8, 9 through 11. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. So what's happening here in the book of Ezekiel is he has taken in a vision into the temple, into the court of the temple, and he is brought in. And this isn't the only time that we see this. There's there's, uh, the priest worshiping the sun. There's women mourning for the death of false gods. And it's really this this remarkable scene where they go into the temple that's supposed to be dedicated to the worship of God. And what do they see there? What does Ezekiel see? All kinds of idols, all kinds of false gods surrounding the walls of the temple. So God is not there in the time of Judah, in the time of Ezekiel, not figuratively surrounded by lies. God is literally surrounded by these lies, these false idols. And maybe that's something that Hosea is describing here. We do know that there were some Uh, some places in the northern kingdom of Israel that were dedicated to worship of God, even though they weren't in Jerusalem, right? Uh, We could think of Bethel, right? Bethel is supposed to be house of God. And we know Hosea turns the name of it to Beth-Avon, house of wickedness, because there's just all this false worship going there. The people of the northern kingdom have certainly been unfaithful, in the house of Israel with deceit, right? Lies and deceit. This is what typifies the heart of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. We could understand this too, right? They say with their mouth words of fidelity unto the covenant that God has made with them. And yet everything in their lives proves the falsehood of that. They, they don't intend to be faithful to the covenant, but they do want the covenant blessings. Now, the second part of this verse gives us some trouble in the Hebrew. Um, the ESV renders it, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And so it renders it in kind of a positive sense. The, the Hebrew text here, the original Hebrew text is, is corrupt. We, we, it's lost to us. And there are some translations that take it more negatively Uh, Like, for instance, the New American Standard renders that Judah is also unruly against God. And so should we understand this as a positive reference or a negative reference? And I think we should probably follow the negative understanding here. If we track kind of the where Judah plays, the role Judah plays in the book of Hosea, it starts out very positive, right? God, God, through the prophet Hosea, says, Judah, don't follow in Israel's footsteps. But as we track along in the, in the timing of Hosea, right, what do we see? Judah, don't, don't follow in Israel's step, footsteps. Judah, you're following in Israel's footsteps. Judah, you're just as bad as Israel. Right? So we're on this downward decline, uh, downward uh, level here. And so at this point in the book, I think we could say that this is not a positive statement. 
uh, it probably means this, the word translated walks here in the ESV, Judah still walks with God. Uh, it's actually a word that kind of means restlessly wanders or roams. And that word that we see translated in English, God, you probably see an uppercase G, God there. Uh, it's actually just kind of a, a generic name that could reference. Uh, it's the it's the word for God that's L, which is sometimes used legitimately of the Lord God. But it could also be the Canaanite high God. So it could be here what Hosea is saying. Judah, he roams about with the Canaanite high God. He's just as bad as the Canaanites. And we see that as we go forth. Um, further, we have verse 2 of chapter 12, which says the Lord has an indictment against Judah. If we were to understand this positively, it seems like a quick turn to get to verse 2 to say, but Judah, Judah is indicted by God. So we should probably follow the negative understanding. Uh, Ephraim is committing apostasy, and Judah is too. That's where we're at in the life of the people of Israel. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, says that Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. And the image here is that they're running after the wind. And how foolish is someone to try and run after the wind to catch it? Can you catch up with the wind? Can you hold on to the wind and store it? If you catch it in a bottle, is it, and you open the bottle later, does it rush out after you? No, right? None of that happens. And yet here we have the people of Ephraim acting like this. Israel's like a runner trying to catch the wind. And we link that idea with what we see in the second part of the verse. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. And what we have is this picture of the northern kingdom of Israel trying to make alliances with these foreign nations to obtain safety and security. They're trying to gain for themselves prosperity by foreign alliances. And all they're doing while they're trying to do that is catch wind. They're trying to catch up with the fog. They're grabbing on to smoke. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, right? They, they're, they're just acting foolishly here. Uh, if you look at 2 Kings 17, you, you see this foolishness. We won't turn there, but I say that so you can go look at that later. 2 Kings 17, and you see how the king of Israel, the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Hosea, how he tries to flip back and forth between fidelity to Assyria and covenants and alliances with Assyria and then trying to go back to Egypt and seeing if Egypt will come and help and give them safety and security. But it's foolishness. And this flitting back and forth that they have between Assyria and Egypt is just a symptom of the greater problem. And what is the greater problem? That just as like they're unfaithful and they're alliances with other nations they're unfaithful to their covenant with god they're unfaithful to their promises to god and we can say ephraim has surrounded me with lies in the house of israel with deceit because they 
proclaim fidelity to God, but prove that they don't mean it in everything that they do. And what is it that they think that they will earn in Assyria or Egypt, right? Again, safety and security. But can they do that? What are the gods of the nations? Nothing. Psalm 96, 5. Psalm 96, 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And the Hebrew there is something like the Elohim of the peoples are Elohim. The gods are not gods. They're nothings. They're vanity. They're worthless. And friend, I would say to you this day that if you try and buy for yourself, earn for yourself safety and security, peace and comfort, you are but running after the wind. Though our government promises it, right? That is the, the platform of every politician. I will make our country safer. I will give you what you need to be prosperous. And though every corporation in our country might be selling some version of it, right? As seen on TV products wouldn't work if they didn't promise what they promised, right? Your life will be better. You'll have uh, safety and security like unparalleled in your life. They can never provide what only God can provide. That's what the people of Israel failed to understand, but this is what we must understand. Jesus speaking in Matthew 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 28, Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right, Christ there calls us to consider the cost of following after him, the cost of following after God and being faithful to him. And though we may be accosted for it, though we may be persecuted for it, we're not to fear flesh and blood, because flesh and blood, all they can do to us at the end of the day is kill us but they can never touch our eternal soul. But there is one who can. We are rather called to be afraid, in a sense, in a, in a real sense, be afraid. But more than that, to worship, reverently fear the one who holds our very souls, our eternal being. So what does this fearing God look like? Well, it means trusting him in all things. It means believing his heard, his word. Uh, it, we take seriously Christ's call to follow after him, right? We build our lives on the teachings of Christ so that when the storm comes, we can withstand it. The storm there being the day of judgment. We repent of our sin. We turn from it and we turn to God. And the question for us is, will we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Will we believe that he has paid the penalty for his people's sins? Will we believe that he has resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God, and he will come back for his people? And for you, what are you chasing after? The Israelites, they were chasing after wind. 
because they were hoping that from their foreign alliances they could get what only God could give them. And I say to you, what are you chasing after? Are you seeking from the things of this world that which only God can give you? Are you seeking from our government safety and security, peace for your soul that only God can give you? Well, we've considered the wind. Now let's think on the womb. The womb in chapter 12, verses 2 to 6. At 2 to 6. And we open up and we see, again, here's this kind of call to a courtroom scene, although we probably shouldn't press too deeply into that. It's a loose metaphor that Hosea uses here. But we have this, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will pay him according to his deeds. Or we might say the Lord has an accusation here. God raises an accusation not just against the northern kingdom, but all the people of Israel, north and south. Right, And with this mention of Jacob here, Hosea begins to develop this understanding that the people of God learn nothing from their ancestors. Right, so this is fundamental, and this will carry us through the rest of the chapter. The people of God have learned nothing from their ancestors. They've learned none of the good. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, Israel inherited the worst traits of its ancestors. And so God will act. He will punish. He will repay. And understand that God will repay for sin. And either he will repay you for it, with eternal punishment in hell, or it will be paid in full by the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. For Christ nailed the record of our debt along with its legal demands on his cross. But what of Jacob? We see uh, verse 3, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. And in this verse we have both references to the name of Jacob, who later becomes Israel. It's prudent to mention here also that what Hosea gives us is not a chronological uh, timeline of the life of Jacob, but rather the events are, are changed to best make uh, his point. <coughs> so verse 3, we have the origin for both of the names of Jacob and Israel. At birth, he's given the name supplanter. That's kind of what Jacob means in the Hebrew. <coughs> or if we wanted to be more interpretive with our understanding of his name, it could mean something like heel grabber. Uh, because when Jacob's born, right, remember Jacob and Esau are twins. And in uh, Hebrew culture, especially in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Whoever the firstborn son is gets a birthright and gets a blessing. They get the majority of all that their father has, right? We're talking about a patriarchal society, and you can go about and shout about the patriarchy later on. Uh, but, right, so, so under the cultural uh, rules, the cultural mores, Esau is born first, and he should have received the majority of what his parents had. That's how it should be. But as a kind of 
hint as to what would happen. Also, we know what was going to happen because God promised, Jacob I love, Esau I hate, before they were even born, before either good or bad had been done by any of them. God had promised that the blessing would go through Jacob, um, which gave a little consternation to their parents. They didn't agree on God's word being God's word. But I digress. You could go back to the book of Genesis, study this all out. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's the glory of God, right? It's the grace of God here. But as he is born, he grabs his brother's heel, and so they call him supplanter or heel grabber. And in his manhood, he becomes Israel because he strives with God. He wrestles with this man all night until the daybreak, and he holds on to this man, and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. We see that right in the next verse. He strove with the angel and prevailed. And what do we know about both of these, uh, both of the times that the first time Jacob is named and the time when Jacob is renamed to Israel? In both cases, Hosea points out to us here, he is one who strives. He's one who fights to get what he wants. Right? He's the supplanter. He's the one who grabs and wrestles his brother, as it were. And he's the one who grabs and wrestles God. Jacob is striving, trying to get something for himself. Um, we know that uh, Genesis 27, 36, Genesis 27, 36. So, so what happens in the lives of Jacob and Esau? Remember that Esau is so hungry that he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. We know that when it comes time for Isaac to die, uh, his mother says, you got to go in and you got to fool your father and you got to get the blessing because he's obstinate and he's going to give the blessing to your brother Esau. So you got to go take it for yourself. So here, here's some goat skin, make you hairy like him. Uh, here, uh, here's some of his clothes, make you smell like him. Uh, here's some really good food. He'll really like this. Um, Isaac is not so quite so fooled. He is, he is fooled eventually, right? But not quite so fooled that he's like, you sure don't sound like Esau. <clears throat> and maybe he coughed a little and said, you know, allergies, right? It's spring, flowers blooming. Um, but, but what we see, Genesis 27, 36 uh, Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob's living up to his name. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said in speaking to Isaac, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Right, and even in the striving uh, with, with Jacob, striving with God, he demands blessing. Genesis thirty-two twenty-six. Genesis thirty-two twenty-six. Then he said, "This is the man he has been wrestling with all night. The man who has put his hip out of joint, and it would be that way for the rest of his life." Then he said, "Let me go, for the day is broken." But Jacob said, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." 
right? This is who Jacob is. He's, he's one who strives and fights to get everything in life. So he strives with the angel and prevail. The, the blessing that he is given is he's renamed Israel, that he becomes the recipient of the grace of God. Verse 4, he wept and sought his favor. And this seemingly has a double meaning. Uh, we certainly could understand it in his relationship to his brother Esau as Jacob goes back home, as God calls Jacob back home, as he goes back to Esau, he is afraid. He's terribly afraid of his brother. <coughs> the rage that his brother had against him when Jacob first left home was such Esau was going to kill Jacob. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm really upset about this, and I'm going to say some mean things to you from time to time. No, the rage that Esau had towards Jacob was a murderous rage. And so we certainly could see how he wept and sought his favor. And you can go through and read kind of the, the story of him coming back to his brother and how he did everything possible to, to try and appease his brother. He sent the women and children first, be like, have pity on me, right? Look at these little ones. They need their father. Oh, look at, I've got, I brought you a thousand sheep, right? Won't that make up for it? It's, so we could see that, but we can also see it with uh, he wept and saw his favor with the angel. And even though we don't see in the Genesis 32 the exact saying that he, he was weeping uh, as he did this, you can kind of imagine after wrestling all night, after having your hip put out a joint, and as you're just trying to hold on with your last ounce of strength and you're saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Right, we can kind of see that he wept and saw his favor. So seemingly double, double meaning reference here. And then Hosea ends with the reference with him. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. And this goes back to Genesis 28, Genesis 28, 13 through 15. This is where Jacob really has his first encounter with God and it changes his life for the better. It takes some time to get from there to him being renamed Israel. But God had purpose for him. Genesis 28, starting in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Right? God speaks this beautiful covenant confirms it again the covenant he made with abraham the covenant he made and reaffirmed with isaac he now makes and reaffirms with jacob and this changes the trajectory of jacob's life right he was the scheming double crosser he's the supplanter and suddenly god intervenes and says jacob i'm gonna bless you and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. God determined to love him before his birth, before he had done either good or bad. And so Hosea directs us to verse 5, 
the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. Now, depending on your version here, you might see that the Lord is in all caps or is in small caps. And what this is in reference to, the translator of your Bible is, is pointing out this, that this is God's covenant name. This is the name that God gave to Moses in the time of the Exodus. This is the name Yahweh. Exodus three thirteen through 15. Exodus three thirteen through 15. This is the name that God is to be remembered by. Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And what does this name, I am who I am, signify? That God is the same yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow and for all eternity. He is the Lord God who does not change what he promises he will do, what he purposes he will accomplish. Jacob is Jacob, or we might say Israel is Israel, because God is God. The nation of Israel is the nation of Israel because God is God. God revealed himself to Jacob. And what Hosea is drawing our attention to is that the same God who revealed himself to Jacob, who made these covenant promises that this would be their land and that they would bless all the families of the earth, that the same God who spoke then is speaking now. He is the Lord God Almighty, the God of hosts, the God of armies. He's all-powerful. But as God had revealed himself to his people, Israel, even now through the prophetic ministry of Hosea, were the people turned for the better? Did they begin to leave their evil ways? We know that's not the case. We continue to verse 6, and we have this kind of intercession. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Right? Hosea calls them to repent. Do you not know who the Lord is? If you know who the Lord is, return to him. Turn from your sins. Turn back to God. He calls them to love and justice and faithfulness. It's the call that Hosea has already made. We could go back to Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. It's the call to remember what God wants from them. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is a call for the faithful remnant of the people too. 
Because even as they see the destruction of their kingdom, of their nation, even as they're carried off themselves into foreign lands, faithfully following after God is not inconsequential. That this is what they're called to, no matter the circumstance they find themselves in. Because He is the Lord. We too, brothers and sisters, don't faithfully follow in the ways of Christ because it's comfortable or convenient or to avoid earthly disaster. No, indeed, in fact, the scriptures are quite clear. Following after Christ comes with difficulties. Listen to the words of Paul and his compatriots in Acts 14, verse 22. And just to give a little background to this, just prior to Paul saying this, some days, maybe some weeks, as he's continued his travels preaching the gospel, he was stoned to death, or almost to death. The scripture's a little vague there. But he was, for all intents and purposes, dead because he preached Christ. Listen to what he says. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Understand, brothers and sisters, following after Christ doesn't mean that life is just on easy mode, that we don't have to worry about any difficulties. There are plenty of preachers out there who will promise that, and they're lying because the scripture gives us no inclination of that. Not only uh, will we suffer difficulties, but the world will hate us for our following after Christ. We're promised that. They hated Christ. What did they do with Jesus? Jesus was holy, committed no sin, was gracious and merciful, loved. And what did they do with Jesus? Mocked him brutalized him and killed him. And you think you're better than your master? You think you deserve it easier than your master? Don't listen to the liars. Listen to the word of God. So it's not that life will be easy, but we know this. The Lord is his memorial name. He is who he is. And what he has promised he will See to the end. And if Christ has promised unto us eternal life, even though they may kill the body, they can't destroy our soul. And our soul is kept by the one in heaven. So we've seen chasing the wind. We've witnessed the travail and the wound. Now let's look at the wealth in verses 7 and 9. 7 through 9, the wealth. Verse 7 begins, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And this word merchant in the Hebrew is actually uh, close to the word Canaan. And so it seems Hosea here is writing with double meaning as he is wont to do. Were the Canaanites known for their good ethics? Were they faithful followers of God? No, we know that to be the case. Indeed, part of the reason for the people of Israel to stay in Egypt before the Exodus was so that way the Canaanites could have their full measure of sin so that when God brought judgment upon them through the hands of the people of Israel, that it would be met in full. 
that their sin would be to the full measure. The Canaanites were not known for their good ethics. They had false balances, as a merchant might. And the context of this is, remember, uh, you go to the marketplace and you say, I want uh, two pounds of grain. You wouldn't say two pounds because they didn't use those measures, but I'm bringing it up for us, right? You go to the marketplace, you say, I want two pounds of wheat. And the crafty merchant might have his balance set a little askew. So that way, when he put one and a half pounds of wheat on it, oh, look, it's two pounds. <laughs> or maybe what he would do is you'd have counterweights to balance. You make a counterweight the same size out of a different metal, has a different weight. Right? Not all metals weigh the same. So you make a, a little weight out of aluminum, it's a lot lighter. You make out of lead, it's a lot heavier. And so what do you do? You put a two pound, two pound weight on it, right? Put that in air quotes, two pound weight. And it's really two and a half or three pounds. And then you pour the weed on it and you say, oh, here you go. Here's two pounds. And what do you, what, what's the point in that, right? The point is, if I can sell you uh, one pound of wheat at a price of two pounds, I've made extra profit. And then I have another pound of wheat that I can sell to some other fool who comes to me. Uh, we have unscrupulous merchants in our own day. I wouldn't say this is per se deceptive, but a common practice is you keep a product the same price, you keep the package the same size, but instead of buying, say, 12 ounces of Cheez-Its, you're really only getting nine and a half ounces of Cheez-Its, and you think, oh, look at same package, we're good to go. Is it deceptive? I don't know. It's a very close line. It's up to you to read and look at the package and say, hey, wait a second. But that's, that's the idea here, right? The merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. This is what uh, the merchant loves to do. This is what the Canaanites love to do. This is what Israel likes to do. Look at the next verse here, verse 8. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. How do you think he got rich? It wasn't through honest means. Israel gloats about their wealth. And not only that, but he says, I found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find me in iniquity or sin. And this last part is not so much, right? It's not that they haven't been sinning. They have been sinning. But what Ephraim is saying here is, is is akin to nobody can hold me accountable on earth. They can't find out my iniquity. Take me to court. I dare you. Nobody could prove a thing on earth. And that last qualifier is important. On earth, they may not come to justice. They may get by with their false balances. But God is not ignorant. He does not miss anything. He sees their sin. That's a good reminder for us, right? We think we may get away with something that nobody else knows about, but God does. He sees us. <coughs> Verse 9, I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. 
Pray, we might ask, why are the people of Israel in the land of Israel to begin with? Because God, right? God brought him into the land. God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He saved his people. And I think much like every parent says, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. God says to them, I brought you into this land and I can take you out of it. And in fact, that's what I'm going to do. He says, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. And the appointed feast is probably the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a time when the people were to gather together and they were supposed to build temporary shelters. They were supposed to build their tents uh, because they were to remember the time that the people, their forefathers, spent in the wilderness, the 40 years of wandering. This feast was a time of remembrance, of remembering how God delivered them. And now God says, you're going to remember what it's like because you're going to live it And it's not going to be a remembrance of something good. It's going to be a reality of punishment for you here and now. Here God promises that the exodus uh, will be undone. The house of riches that they lived in will be no more. And then said they're going to live in temporary tents. God is saying to the people of the northern kingdom that they are more like Canaan than they are like Jacob. And they are like Israel. Because we could say, well, what do we know about Jacob? Well, he amended his stealing ways. Right? He really did have a change. And God blessed him and gave him much. But the northern kingdom, identified by the single tribe Ephraim, have made themselves more and more like the pagan nations around them. And so we might say, rightly, are they called not my people? So we go from the wealth now to the wayward, the wayward. We'll look at verses 10 through 14. We finish our passage. Verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 says, I spoke to the prophets. Did God leave himself without a witness? Did the people not know? Could they have known something different that would have changed the outcome of what happened to them? Was there no attempt at correction for the waywardness of the people? God says here, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. He gave them revelations. He spoke in similitudes. He made it easy for even the simplest among them to understand. Okay, they may not understand deep theology, but I bet you they can understand what it means when a wife goes off prostituting. And commits adultery. Right? That's one of the metaphors. That's one of the parables that Hosea gives. Will they not listen? And ask that of you. Will you not listen to God? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, I want to show you what 
the author of Hebrews draws for us, the conclusion that we must arrive at if we understand that God has spoken through his Son, who is God, right? The exact nature, the exact imprint, the radiance of his glory. So what do we do? The essential conclusion here, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if this is true, and go through and read back in Hebrews 1, Jesus is more excellent than the angels because he is a son. He's not a created being like the angels are. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Friend, God has spoken through his Son. He has made clear his purpose and plan. He made known to you the promise of salvation. And what do you think will happen to you if you fail to heed God's word? What excuse do you think you can offer on the day of judgment before the Lord of heaven? If you hear my voice, Do you think he will be merciful after you have rejected his word, the word that was spoken by his son, attested by many witnesses in signs and wonders? Well, let's hold on to that question, and we'll hold on to this question. Well, what what does Hosea say about the people of Israel? What will God do with Ephraim? Let's hold that question and continue. Verse 11. If there is iniquity in Gilead, and remember, uh, what we have here in this verse is a parable. And what's the first parable? Well, we have about Gilead. If there's iniquity in Gilead, uh, we could go back to chapter 6, verse 8 of Hosea. Gilead is a city of bloodshed. Uh, Gilead is also a region, the name of a region, and it has ties with Jacob. So we're all weaving this together here. And it's possible here... Right? If there's iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. It's possible that Hosea, as Hosea is delivering this message, that the city of Gilead has already been destroyed by Tiglath-Pileser III. So it's possible that as he's writing, he say, you want a parable? Here's a parable. Look at the city of Gilead. It's nothing. It's worthless. It's gone. It's a cultural place of evil, and it is no more. And then he continues in verse 11. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. It's a place of false worship. And what does their many altars give them? Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Meaning the field's been plowed, and all their altars do are put stones in the places that have been plowed. That's a problem. You're not going to grow much if the place that you plowed is filled with stones. You're stupid if you put stones in your plowed field, right? That's what he's saying to them. 
You're foolish. You want, right? And, and we have to tie this all into what are, what are they trying to do when they sacrifice bulls? They want fertility for the land. They want produce and prosperity for their crops. And all that they're doing instead, it would be as though they grabbed a stone and hurled it into the field right where they're going to plant their crops. They're stupid, right? We, I, that's my version, right? of what Hosea is saying here. You're foolish. You're foolish. You're absolutely foolish because you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. That's the parable. Hosea is saying, pay attention. God's spoken. Uh, Verse 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram and there Israel served for wife and for wife he guarded sheep. Jacob was a shepherd. He kept sheep in order to obtain for himself a wife. And there was a little bait and switch on the first go around, but he did finally get what he wanted on the second go around. I right, go back and read that story. But Jacob was a shepherd and he kept his sheep for a wife. And verse 13 tells us, so too God was a shepherd of the people that he might obtain for himself a wife, right? That husband wife metaphor being something that Hosea develops, especially in the beginning of the book by a prophet of the Lord, brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet he was guarded. Who's the prophet? Moses, right? So you're saying God led the people. He shepherded the people so that he might have for himself a people. And yet for all that, verse 14 says, Ephraim has given bitter provocation or Ephraim has stirred up God to bitter anger. This is the kind of anger that is not appeased or placated. They have moved God to have a grudge towards them. Right? That's human language. So I say that, does God hold grudges? I wouldn't describe God that way. But that's the language um, uh, that we kind of, this idea that we get in this passage here, right? They provoke God to bitter anger. Uh, Further, it says, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him. One commentator uh, points out here that this this phrase, his Lord, seems like a downgrade in their relationship. Because originally they were husband-wife, right? Now it's Lord-slave. And what will God do? Leave his blood guilt on him. Blood guilt is a capital crime, right? It's something that deserves right that the right punishment for blood guilt is death. The people have acted disgracefully or with contempt. They have reproached God. And for such covenant unfaithfulness, God will repay them. God had sent Jacob, Moses, other prophets, now Hosea to them. He had spoken to the people. He had revealed himself in his ways to them. And what will God do to those who do not listen to him? Destroy them bring destruction upon them, remove them from the land, remove his blessings from them. And I ask again, what will God do with you, friend? His word is here before you. God has spoken to you in his word. He has called you to leave the ways of this world and to follow after him in faith. There are times in life when we may encounter someone who changes the trajectory of our life for the better. 
And friend, Christ Jesus has come to this place, has spoken, has proved who he is, and you have every opportunity to know him. Such an encounter with Jesus should change you for the better. If you come to meet Jesus, you ought walk away forever changed. He calls you out of a life enslaved to sin, and he calls you to abundant eternal life. Because Jesus Christ did what you never could, live a holy, perfect life. And in his death on the cross, he paid the penalty of his people's sins. He bore God's wrath that his people may never do so. And he rose from the grave as a vindication, as proof that God accepted him and his sacrifice. And he ascended to heaven to intercede on behalf of his people until he comes back again to bring him, bring them to his side forevermore. And friend, you can join Jesus in the joys of, all, of heaven for all eternity, being at peace with God, experiencing the fullness of the glory of God. You need believe in him. You need trust in Jesus. You need to seek God in faith. Do so today. Turn from your sins and turn unto Christ Jesus. Plead with God to, to save you. Pray for his grace, his unearned favor to be upon you. But if you ignore God's voice, if you don't heed his word, he will punish sin. He will repay you for all the evil that you do, all the bad that you think and say and do, the good that you fail to do, will be repaid to you for all eternity. Mark the word of God, because it always holds true. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you have had a life-altering encounter with God. God has opened your eyes to see the truth, to hear his word, and to understand, to turn to him. Praise God for that, right? Thank him evermore for his grace towards you, because without a doubt, you are the beneficiary of the blessings of God. And he calls you to live differently. He calls you to what Hosea called the people of Israel here to in uh, chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. And then listen, what are we to do? Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So first we're called to hold to hesed, steadfast love. Be faithful unto the covenant that God has called you to in Christ. Right? We're not faithful to the covenant of Christ in order to earn our right to have the covenant of Christ. Right, we're faithful to the covenant of Christ because that's what God does in us. That's what he does to us. He gives us new hearts. Love, hold fast to love and justice. Walk in holiness before him. Do good. You have been saved that you may do good works. You are not saved by your good works. I'm going to say that again. I'll say it every time. You're not saved by your good works. But you are saved to do good works. God has prepared them before you. Ephesians 2.10. If you don't believe me, that that's, what you're, that's the purpose of God for you. Good works. You don't live this life for yourself. Right? We have a culture that is obsessed with self. It's all about us. And this impacts and influences the life of the church because we bring those self-centered ideals into the church and we say, church is about you. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about Christ Jesus. So, 
Walk in holiness before him and wait in faithfulness. Right? This, wait continually for your God. Wait upon the Lord. Wait for Christ's return. Eagerly wait for his appearing. Don't be weary, but alert. Be prepared for the return of the bridegroom. Don't be a foolish virgin. And I'll let you look up that reference later. One of the parables of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and 6 says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And I'll leave you with this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain through salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, alive, or asleep, dead, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given your word unto us, Lord. We thank you for this word of Hosea. And Father, we pray that as we have encountered you today in your word, that it would change us forever for the better. Lord, we thank you for, for those of us who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, who have believed in him. Lord, we thank you for that life-altering encounter that we had when you saved us. And Father, we pray that many more would have that same encounter. Father, we pray that our friends and family members, that our neighbors and coworkers might come to know Jesus. Lord, that they would hear your word, that they would listen to it, understand it, believe it, and live it. Father God, we pray that for our own selves. Let us not be dumb or foolish, but let us ever praise your name. God, help us, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.